Ana Lucia Araujo is a professor of history at Howard University and the author of several books on slavery and race, including Public Memory of Slavery, Brazil Through French Eyes, Reparations for Slavery and the Slave Trade, and finally, Slavery in the Age of Memory, which we discuss in this episode as a part of our mini-cast on politics. Focusing on the Americas, as well as Europe, Africa, and other parts of the world, Ana talks about the history of slavery, how it is remembered and taught, and how that trauma is reenacted in the present. We cover the Black Lives Matter movement, the memorialization of enslaved peoples, the condemnation and removal of Confederate monuments, as well as other symbols of racism, and how we fight for systemic change to heal wounds from the past. Take a listen. Today on the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast, I'm speaking to Ana Lucia Araujo, the author of Slavery in the Age of Memory, Engaging the Past. Thanks so much for being on the show, Ana. I really think that conversations about collective memory are very important right now to understanding the ways that modern societies are currently grappling with racial inequality, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you for having me. So what motivated you to write this book? Well, um, I have been writing and doing research uh, about memory of slavery for about 15 years. Then as I conducted research uh, in different places in Europe, West Africa, and also in the Americas, especially then in Brazil, uh, then when I moved to the United States in 2008, uh, I noticed that unlike the, the context of the UK or France, there was not much debate about memory of slavery, especially among academics. Uh, those uh, doing memory studies were mainly people, um, scholars working on the Holocaust. And for historians uh, in general, uh, many of them, the study of memory, then the idea of how individuals or groups uh, and societies then engage uh, with the, the past of slavery in the present. This kind of field was not really considered as a field of inquiry. And this situation, I would say that it started changing then by 2013. And especially uh, when um, the, the movement then Black Lives Matter uh, emerged. And then in 2015, then when this uh, white uh, domestic terrorist uh, killed nine African-Americans then uh, in Charleston at the Emmanuel African-American um, uh, then Emmy Church in Charleston, South Carolina, this led then to this powerful wave of demonstrations then calling for the removal of the Confederate flag uh, from public buildings and also the Confederate monuments honoring pro-slavery in Individuals. And at that moment, uh, historians, they were really called to intervene um, in the debate about then the, the, the issue of uh, slavery in the present, how people were engaging with slavery in the, the present. And I saw a lot of confusion, even when historians were 
discussing that matter, there was confusion between the terms, the concepts of history, memory, collective memory, cultural memory, public memory. And we still see this debate going on now, of course. Um, and this is why I decided, and I, I have to write a book that uh, will engage with the, um, the issue of slavery, but we will address the different modalities of memory of slavery. And that will be something that will be also accessible to students who are trying to, to understand these concepts. And this is, is was mainly what motivated me uh, to, to, to write the book. I was at the time finishing then a work on the, the history of uh, reparations for slavery, that material and um, uh, financial reparations for slavery. And it was at that moment that these debates uh, became more more visible. And I was working with Bloomsbury and then I decided to, to, to submit a proposal to write a book uh, on this topic. Mm. Yeah, and you're and you're really approaching this from a, a cross cultural perspective, um, and you've mentioned a couple of different contexts already. But you know, with with cultural memory, how do you think and in archival work? Why do you think it's important? Why? How does it actually help societies have a healthier relationship with their own history? Well, uh, let's say that uh, for historians, then uh, we as historians, the archives are somewhat our church uh, in many ways. Then, of course, we work with archives, usually then with uh, written archives. And uh, it's also, um, it is uh, in the archive, then and the archive has all these uh, biases. Um, it is usually through the archive that we have access then to the, the voices of actors who lived in the past. For example, then in the case of slavery, slave owners, enslaved people, and so on. And uh, when you're talking about collective memory uh, of slavery, for example, in many ways it's about transmission. Uh, then it's related, for example, to how individuals and groups, they remember the past, but there is no homogeneous collective memory. For example, if you are studying uh, the, the collective memory of the slavery, the archives usually, they, they give us channels to understand then, uh, for example, how, me, uh, how families of slave merchants and slave owners, they remember slavery. We can have access to that, uh, to that through journals, correspondences, and other kinds of accounts, uh, and so on. But when you are looking at the collective memory of enslaved people, it's often not accessible through the written archives. Uh, then it, we have, of course, in England and in the United States, slave narratives. There are part of this large archive that gives us access to the, the collective memory of enslaved people. Then in my book, as I study memory, I use then a variety of sources, including, of course, the, the slave narratives. But I also use uh, um, newspaper articles, published interviews, correspondences, uh, and so on. And in the many ways, in many ways, the, the archives that I use in the book uh, include, of course, uh, monuments, memorials. Uh, memorials, uh, statues, uh, museum collections, and displays. Now, regarding the issue of cultural memory, that is much more that uh, modality of memory that is 
present uh, that is more physical, that is uh, associated with rituals and has a sort of material component. Uh, the, the work that we do in the archives is important, and we see this in the chapter two of the book, where, where I explore um, cultural memory, that uh, many of the memorials that have been uh, erected to honor either the victims of the Holocaust and then more recently uh, honoring the victims of slavery. Many of these memorials, they have now um, names of those who were enslaved. Then we needed historians. And I mentioned here, for example, what was done at the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. Uh, we need historians then who are digging sometimes and creating databases with names that tell the stories of uh, these enslaved people. And they are putting these names on display to finally allow people to uh, to see these names and to see that um, behind the tragic history of uh, slavery, there were people uh, who were people like us, who had the children who loved, uh, who then uh, who died, uh, who mourned uh, their ancestors as well. And by showing these names, we give this living dimension that is often uh, absent uh, in many of the initiatives that try to, to reconstruct the, the stories of the slavery. Yeah, I mean... A couple of things. It's just like when you, I think when you know your history, you begin to think a little bit differently about who we are as a country. I mean, you, you mentioned holo the Holocaust memorials and, uh, you know, as like, as a Jewish person walking around mm -hmm. Germany, I actually feel quite safe because mm -hmm. there's markers all around Berlin, for instance, um, commemorating where people were, were snatched and where Jews were snatched into, and taken to concentration camps. But, you know, I think that's often the parallel that people draw when, we're talking about Confederate mon monuments in the States and, and how, how violent it must feel for people of color to, to see these, these um, reminders of white supremacy all the mm -hmm. time. You know, I think notions of American freedom and equality look really different when you're intimate with that history of racial injustice and native genocide. And mm -hmm. I think failure to sort of fully acknowledge that history condemns us to repeat it, you know, as the saying goes. We, we think when we actually, ref I, I think about all the time about, you know, you used the example of the white supremacist terrorist attack that happened in, in South Carolina in Charleston. Mm -hmm. it, it's just an example of how when we refuse to reconcile our history with slavery, it, it produces this new kind of racial, it produces the same kind of racial violence. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and uh, I, I I think that one of the um, the elements that uh, the absence of these markers or even the existence of these markers uh, that they can um, lead to this sort of reckoning with uh, the the past of these atrocities. In that case, in 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 Charleston. It was interesting because uh, we saw indeed, uh, and the book shows that uh, after the 
the, then of course we have this moment then after the end of the Cold War is starting in the 1990s when many of these monuments, uh, when many social actors indeed start um, uh, then questioning the fact that uh, slavery was absent from the public space, then this absence of memorials or uh, monuments honoring enslaved people. And in the 1990s, indeed, there will be uh, a, a, a big number of uh, initiatives memorializing the Holocaust in a country like the United States, for example, the very memorial, um, the museum, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. was created in the early 1990s. This, this corresponds to this wave that it starts at that point. But especially after the election of uh, Barack Obama as president of the United States, we have this sort of um, uh, then um, opposition that starts uh, emerging in the public space because that young terrorist, uh, what was interesting in his case is that he visited uh, several of the sites associated with slavery in Charleston and took pictures, selfies of himself on those sites. Then his very um, uh, then, uh, then action, the, the atrocity that he committed was clearly a response to the fact that there was at least, uh, the beginning of a discussion around uh, the, the slavery past of uh, Charleston. For example, the plantations now in that area are showing, uh, of course, nothing is perfect, but they, at that point, they were showing then, uh, then in the, 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 the tours, they were uh, showing much more of this history that in the past uh, was, uh, was absent. And this is, we are still at this stage here then, unlike Germany, for example, in terms of education, uh, there is no national mandatory uh, elements in the, the curriculum, in school curricula, or also at the university level that makes mandatory the teaching of slavery and these atrocities. And this is the kind of reckoning that um, Germany did, uh, not only with a memorial, for example, that is in the middle of Berlin, but also many other uh, initiatives. Then here we are still behind, not only here, of course, in other places as well, but now we are seeing the, the exposure of these scars that have been there for, for so long. Hmm. Are there other, you know, obviously Germany is a very prominent example to hold up, to contrast with the United States, but in your book, are there other cultural contexts that you have in conversation with each other? Yes, then the book indeed deals a lot with the United States. Um, and uh, I have, of course, then I have uh, other contexts, especially then uh, Britain and France, and also um, some discussion in the first chapter about West Africa, where uh, we have today uh, the country uh, Republic of Benin, and also Brazil. Uh, but mostly I would say that is United States, France, and England. Now, these three countries have elements in common. 
uh, we can say that in the three places, of course, France and England, uh, slavery uh, didn't uh, was not prominent uh, in terms of uh, plantation. Slavery was not prominent uh, in the, 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 the on the the continent, but uh, uh, slavery occurred then in the West Indies, in, in the in the Caribbean, in the colonies of these two of these two nations. Um, but in the two places, is really in the 1990s that uh, commemoration activities usually around the 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 anniversaries of the abolition then in Britain especially 2007 that was the bicentennial of the abolition of the British slave trade and then uh, in France in 19 98, when is the sesquicentennial of the abolition of 1848? These are the moments when these two countries started then debating the the issue of uh, slavery, uh, their involvement in slavery. I would say that they uh, also like the United States, especially in England, as we saw in June of this year during the summer when. then the demonstrators started uh, uh, then taking down statues honoring slave merchants and slave owners like Colston in Bristol that I discussed Colston uh, in the book uh, then but of course in June the statue of Colston was uh, was um, then toppled by the demonstrators in the book, it was not yet the case. Then in these uh, two places, uh, then th- th- there is um, a, a, a clear connection uh, between these reactions to these monuments honoring prize slavery individuals and uh, people who are uh, who promoted uh, the colonization of Africa. There is a relation between these protests and uh, racial inequalities and racism how racism operates in these two societies. In particular, the, the, in the case of uh, Britain, either in Liverpool or in Bristol, the, the, the moments that, um, that launched these protests already in uh, the late 1980s is, uh, were associated with police brutality. Then if you look at this history, and this is why it's interesting to look at the history of memory, because uh, we see that what is happening now in June 2020 is a repetition of uh, events that uh, have been happening uh, for a number of years when uh, the monuments become the target, uh, but is the expression of this um, social unrest associated and uh, with racism and white supremacy and the, the ways that it operates in these uh, different societies. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in, in, in mentioning the movement for Black Lives and the uprisings that have been happening across the planet since around June with the murder of George Floyd catalyzing it. I think that there's different, I mean, it, it basically fits within this long history. It's, it's the most recent thread in, I think, a long history of resistance in both the United States and the United Kingdom and beyond, right? Um, there's all these different actors involved. Mm-hmm. There's, there's people in the protests that are insisting that we embrace this collective memory because I think, as you're saying, it, it really informs modern racism in a lot of ways. But then there's, mm-hmm. there's the state that's refusing to engage with that memory. And I guess what I'm wondering is, 
what's the relationship between memory and willfully forgetting? Why do people or states choose to forget? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and one uh, point when you are referring to, to memory is that, of course, there is no memory without forgetting. We cannot remember everything then to as uh, human beings, as uh, groups, or as nations. There are elements of the past that uh, we have uh, to leave behind. But of course, that when this memory becomes more official and when you have... Um, um, memory is always then the, 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 what we call public memory is always politicized, then is always carried by groups, groups who have, of course, their own political agendas. And they are fighting in the public space to see, uh, whose point of view is going to, uh, to win. And, uh, if a group is the, the winner in terms of, uh, having a certain version of the past uh, recognized in the public space, this is when then uh, particular monuments will predominate in the case of the United States and everywhere in the, the United States, in France, in England, the, the monuments, these markers that are in the public space, they are then this, uh, they, they honor then uh, white men, let's say that way, uh, who uh, in many cases were slave owners, uh, who defended, uh, who promoted and uh, is slavery, who also uh, then led uh, the conquest and the, the colonization uh, of African countries. And in the case of the United States, of course, uh, what is interesting is that even if the Confederates, they lost to the Civil War, they won the, the symbolic battle by uh, placing all these uh, hundreds of monuments across the country, uh, then honoring uh, these individuals who fought to uh, to maintain slavery in the the country. Then uh, the um, this uh, memory is always manipulated. Memory is always political, and this is why. Uh, these particular devices that are the monuments or memorials and so on, they have been uh, historically constructed to honor, uh, to, to, to show a particular view of, uh, of the past. There is not, of course, the view of, tho- uh, of the majority and is not the view of those who are the victims of the, the atrocities. Then this is when uh, this willful Forgetting occurs because uh, we are representing these men as people who are um, benevolent, who are um, philanthropists in many ways, who protected the children in the case of Colston, for example, in in Britain and so on. But uh, the the states have been the the, the public uh, powers; they have been avoiding than uh, to tell the other side of uh, the story. Because, of course, everybody, and as historians, we can understand that when a monument, such as the monument, for example, to Colston, that was created at the end of the 19th century, when uh, slavery was uh, abolished uh, already for a while, 
uh, in the British Empire, but there was this, uh, it was at the, the summit of the, of the, the moment when Britain was uh, colonizing the, the African continent. And it's understandable that this monument was placed there in Bristol at that particular moment and that so many other venues in Bristol then honored that man. But then we have social actors that since at least the early 1990s have been contesting that view that only showed one side of uh, the, the story and that refused to um, to show Colston, for example, as a man who participated in the Atlantic slave trade, and especially because this is not only about a man, but refused to show how the city itself then had an important role in the Atlantic slave trade and how the uh, descendants of uh, those were either enslaved or colonized how uh, they continue to be marginalized in that uh, in that society then the problem is that the the the, the public powers they refused uh, to 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 listen to these uh, calls that have been there for a long time, and th this is when then the the actions that we saw uh, during this summer they occur. They occur not uh, it's not sudden. Then for many years these actors they have been asking uh, to add at least context and to add the the, the part of the story that was being suppressed, uh, uh, consciously uh, suppressed. Yeah, I, I think that what you're getting at with all these different examples in, in Bristol or in the States um, is that people want to absolve themselves of responsibility um, and absolve themselves of their of their role in in the Atlantic slave trade in particular. You know, this is it really makes me think of this this conversation that I heard between um, Ezra Klein from Vox and Brian Stevenson, who's mm -hmm. um, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative for people listening. Mm -hmm. And um, something, and he also, uh, just for context, he, he created the Legacy Museum in the States mm -hmm. in Alabama, which is, you know, is the first museum in the States to display the history of racism and slavery in America. Something that Ezra Klein brought up that I think is, is, is related to what you're saying is he brought this really interesting point up about pronouns that I want to reiterate here, mm -hmm. you know, in the U S context, he always, people invoke the, we, when it brings on national pride, like we went to the moon first, or we won the most Olympic medals, right? Even though mm -hmm. you and I didn't win <laughs> medals, but we, we invoke that we, when, when we're proud of it. But, but when it comes to our national shame, for instance, slavery or Japanese internment camps or native genocide, I think people tend to abdicate ownership. You hear people, especially white people in the States, say things like, my family came here in the 20th century and we were poor Irish people who got treated badly. When we abdicate that kind of responsibility, we, we totally, I think, change the landscape of, of, of what actually happened in the past. Yeah, and um, it, it's interesting this idea of these other groups also who 
uh, who attempt to dissociate themselves from these um, from these atrocities and from the then the errors that were committed in the past. Uh, but one of the elements I uh, think that the book uh, makes the connection uh, through a particular case studies, but of course there were other authors that I that I engage with in the book that have been emphasizing then uh, this uh, connection between how slavery is remembered and memorialized in the public space and the problem of race and racism. Uh, in other words, uh, then the same uh, slavery in this country and in the Americas was a racialized institution. Then when the Atlantic slave trade emerged, of course, slavery existed in other societies in antiquity, in Greece, in, in Rome, uh, in Egypt, uh, even in Africa, uh, and in the Americas before the arrival of uh, Europeans. But uh, the, the, the institution of slavery that emerges with the Atlantic slave trade, then starting uh, then by the end of the, fifth, uh, the, the 1400s, the 15th century, is a different kind of slavery, is chateau slavery, and is racialized. It means that those who were enslaved were people uh, who are either Africans, black Africans, and who were their descendants. Um, in other words, uh, these comparisons, uh, and we saw this uh, among white supremacists in the United States, especially, um, it was much more intense uh, four years ago with the presidential election, uh, these comparisons between uh, Irish immigrants and uh, enslaved people and this idea that uh, Irish, they were enslaved in the United States, which is not true. Uh, they were, then many of them, they were uh, indentured uh, servants, then people who came here by their decision with a contract uh, that was uh, that had a, a term that 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 had a, a date to to end which was not the case of uh, those who came uh, to the United States as enslaved people they slavery uh, the status of an enslaved person was inherited uh, through the mother and unless that person was able in very then, especially in the case of the United States, it was difficult to a person to purchase his or her own freedom or that uh, the, the, the owner decided to free that person. And essentially it was a, a status that was for life. Uh, which was different from the, the case of these people who came here as indentured servants. Now, as slavery was racialized, memory of slavery is also racialized. We see all over the book that, that these debates were always uh, constructed along uh, racial lines, which means that this we uh, becomes rather than us and them. And uh, this is a, something that becomes very that becomes very clear and becomes very clear also when people want to dissociate their responsibility, not because their ancestors were uh, necessarily slave owners, but they people they want to avoid the fact that uh, the very fact that they are white, that they are categorized, identified as whites, uh, that that kind of uh, label give them uh, gives them then uh, privileges and opportunities that people who are 
racialized as black uh, do not uh, do not have yes i think in light of the uh, election i think the us versus them dynamic is very much front and center in american society i think that something i've been thinking about a lot is just the exacerbation of all of these different dynamics that you're talking about have rendered, you know, we've it's 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 rendered your fellow American citizens or other human beings as as the enemy. If if you think about it's it's almost like we exist in entirely different truth planes. Like if you're talking to somebody in the South about the Civil War and it's uh, you know it's it's a war of Northern aggression to them, but like. You can't like approach the conversation from good faith if you have a completely different sense of of what actually happened, why it happened, and how how it's informing current dynamics and in, in society. But you know, I, we've talked a little bit about forgetting, but what's happening right now in the project of remembering slavery that that sort of encourages you? I mean, are there are there people, are there social actors in society that are doing things to sort of rectify the damage done from this societal refusal to remember? Mm-hmm. Um, what can I say? Uh, even though it doesn't look like that, indeed, uh, even if this battle is a permanent battle, it's not uh, a game that will be ever uh, won, we can say. Um, what we see uh, in places like the United States and everywhere, indeed, uh, we can see this even in places like Argentina, in Spain, in Portugal, uh, places that I didn't examine in the book. But in all these places, there is a growing number of initiatives that, one, are recognizing the importance of the, the history of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade and its impacts then um, in the Americas, in Europe, and in Africa. In addition to that, there are growing efforts also even to pass legislation that um, that recognize these atrocities. For example, in France, uh, we have then um, in 2001 um, a law that was the Tobira Law, that was a turning point, uh, even if we, of course, nothing is perfect. We are seeing what is going on in France now as well. But uh, it was a turning point to recognize slavery as a crime against humanity, uh, slavery and the slave trade. And from there, there was a national day that is commemorated in May. It's a national day of uh, remembrance then uh, of uh, slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, there are efforts also, of course, African-American communities and Afro-descendant communities uh, then in Europe uh, and especially in the Americas, they have been then uh, they, they champion all these efforts to memorialize the past of their ancestors. Very often in community museums, sometimes with uh, the preservation of cemeteries of uh, enslaved people and so on. But there is there are growing efforts then by the communities uh, at the national levels in terms of legislation and then through tangible initiatives. For example, since 
uh, then uh, Obama took office in 2008 because I live in Arlington, Virginia. Then I work at Howard University, it's just in Washington, D.C., but in this area that the DMV area, uh, Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, there are numerous uh, uh, initiatives that were developed. For example, the plantations that I discussed in the book, there are the two main plantations of um, founding fathers, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, Monticello and Mount Vernon that are here in the area. They started uh, then uh, engaging with this history of slavery associated with the founding fathers then over the last 30 years, but especially in the last decade, it became much more prominent. And if you go to Mount Vernon or Monticello today, you are going to see then clear, clear acknowledgement that these founding fathers were uh, slave owners. They have slave tours. Uh, there are, I have criticism to what is being done in these places in the book, but there is uh, then uh, a growing acknowledgement. Also, if you look here in the Washington DC, the, the, there were uh, several monuments and statues, for example, honoring Frederick Douglass, um, also Sojourner Truth that were unveiled uh, over the last years in the Capitol, um, uh, Capitol building and in the visitor center. And in addition to that, of course, I would say that the most important uh, achievement in the United States regarding these stories, of course, we have the Whitney Plantation, uh, there is a museum of slavery that is a plantation museum that is, it was designed only to tell the history of the slavery uh, in Louisiana and broadly uh, than in the United States. And this I examine in the book, but especially the National Museum of African American History and Culture that was uh, planned almost for one century and was unveiled three years ago. Than I did four years ago already. But this is the major museum in the world today that tells the history of slavery. The museum is not a slavery museum, but the first level of the museum where the visit starts is a big uh, exhibition uh, titled then uh, Slavery and Freedom that was created by Mary Elliott and Nancy Burkle. And this is bigger than any museum of slavery, such as the one that we have in Liverpool in England. Then every day, and I have been doing that on social media, following the news associated with slavery by using a hashtag uh, slavery archive. And this I have been doing at least for the last five years. And Every day there is something happening, either a monument that is being unveiled, either an exhibition. Of course, there are many, many, many books, academic books and others that are not academic that are being uh, then uh, published, but also uh, cemeteries of enslaved people that are uncovered almost on a monthly basis in the United States, in Brazil, in the Caribbean, and so on. Then uh, I would say that despite this, this outcry that we have today, because the outcry is about racism and racial inequalities, there is indeed a growing number uh, of monuments and 
uh, initiatives honoring enslaved people that is occurring. Of course, it's not enough. It's just the beginning. Uh, but I would say that this is a sign uh, that is something also positive that is happening with all from all these uh, these uh, difficult times that we are living in now. Um. We, we only have time for, for one more question, but you've just brought up all of these pretty incredible initiatives championed by activists and, you know, different social actors to confront the horrific legacy of slavery across different cultural contexts. But, you know, on, on a final note, mm-hmm. what do you, you know, when I'm thinking about your title, Engaging with Slavery, I'm thinking about the word engage you know, as a, as a collective society, including the white people who have, you know, vested interest in maintaining their power in willfully forgetting, as we were talking about, how, how do we collectively as a society, even the people who don't want to hear it, what would it actually take for America to heal and to become the country that it's always sort of claimed to be? Well, this is a this is a very difficult question. I would say that uh, in many ways, um, as a historian, I think that uh, healing uh, it depends on who we are talking about. Collectively, I would say that uh, the debates are important. That uncovering the truth is important. And I think that uh, historians, uh, then traditionally the work that we are supposed to do, I, I'm not saying that historians are neutral. Uh, there is nothing neutral. Historians always have points of view and biases. Uh, the sources are biased and so on. But in many ways, you are trying to uh, uncover uh, the truth and to reach some level of uh, uh, objective point of view. And I think that this is an element that from the point of view of education, from the point of view of press, from the point of view of uh, intellectuals and people who are participating in the public debate, uh, this uh, search for the the truth is something that is important. Uh, It's crucial in the moment that you are living in. In this country over the last four years, I'm not saying that everything is started in the last four years, but over the last four years, uh, it it has been prominent, this idea that... um, that uh, we have uh, alternative facts, that uh, it, that, that, then it, all the idea of the, the fake news and so on. Then I think that we have a responsibility as publishers, as authors, as scholars, as students, as citizens to look for the truth, uh, to believe in science, to believe that it's possible to have some level of objectivity. And from there uh, is that, uh, for example, education uh, should emphasize then and must emphasize, and I don't know how it would be done in a country like the United States because uh, the at the federal level, then each state does uh, what uh, is decided to do, but uh, education is crucial then when you were referring to, to textbooks that are adopted uh, at, 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 at some, in some states that state that um, 
slavery was, uh, that the Atlantic slave trade was a sort of voluntary migration, then this is the kind of thing that must be uh, corrected. Then this is uh, one step. I think that, and also there is no step that it is uh, taken that is not painful. Then there is a need of, uh, I would say, to to face this 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 painful past and uh, face the the ugly side of this past. This I would say as a nation. Now, um, and of course, uh, from the point of view of particular groups, then this is the healing process is more complicated. I don't believe that people whose ancestors were enslaved and who for generations uh, were stri- stripped then from from their names, from their heritage, uh, then from having access to education and so on. Uh, is it possible to fully heal? I'm not sure. But there are steps that could be made. Then uh, one of these steps, of course, we have been discussing for a while is the issue of reparations, mm. uh, not reparations as tokens and as uh, then the I am seeing here, not in the ways that perhaps I've been studying in my previous book, but as something that is broader and that we redress injustices that were committed and that we redress this now. Then why we are still seeing people, uh, then uh, George Floyd's being killed, murdered by the the police, as uh, you are seeing today in this country, as you are seeing in places like, uh, like Brazil, that was the largest slave society in the Americas. While this is still happen, there is no path that is possible uh, to, to, to solve this, this trauma that because the trauma is being reenacted in the present uh, repeatedly. And I think that we need this, uh, that we need this debate and we need also concrete measures that are taken to avoid this uh, repetition. And of course, I think that in different societies, it may look differently. For example, if you are referring to descendants of enslaved people who are living in England or still today in the Caribbean, then reparations can be something different that they can be, for example, in the case of Brazil or the United States. But uh, I believe that is especially then uh, the elimination of these uh, deep uh, racial inequalities that uh, that we see in terms of uh, have uh, uh, then all the, in terms of the the economic uh, inequalities that are associated uh, with race. Then some people they are of course uh, claiming uh, demanding land in cases like Brazil. Uh, historically, land has been a way of uh, uh, awarding reparations in other places. Many individuals are seeing this in a way that is more related to symbolic reparations. CARICON, uh, the Caribbean community in their 10-point plan, they see uh, different kinds of pro- uh, programs that are uh, uh, international and the idea, for example, of pardon the, the the debts of countries in the Caribbean, including countries such as Haiti, um, but other places like in this country, then perhaps it it would involve the creation of programs and so on. But there is no consensus. But if, from my point of view, which is not important because I am just one person is studying this, but from my point of view, I would say that. Uh, at least the elimination of this deep 
uh, inequalities. And uh, to do that, um, uh, it would require systemic changes that are not only giving an amount uh, of money to a couple of uh, individuals or organizations, then it's a complicated matter. The legacies of the of slavery and colonialism, they are everywhere and they require then uh, systemic changes. We as historians, we are not dictating what should be done across the board, but I think that the communities, they, they, they know better. I think that we should be listening to what these communities, they are asking, and this change should come from, from below and not from, from the bottom. The scholars, they like much to, to dictate what should be done and so on, and I think that... Um, uh, we should be there much more to to listen and to tell people how things happened in the past, how they are still happening in the present. But the the, the citizens themselves, they should be the ones who who are um, who are telling what should be done. Mm. I think that's actually a very nice thought to end on that the that social power is social change is, is ultimately going to happen from movements of people. So I just I just want to thank you again, Anna, for being on the show. This was incredibly thought-provoking and um, I encourage everybody listening to buy your book, which I will link in the show notes. Um, but <laughs> thanks, thank, thank you again. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. It was a pleasure and I hope that the, the audience will read the book and I hope you enjoy it. 